Um, it's a privilege to introduce um, our moderator, who will then in introduce the panelists uh, for this uh, panel on cracking the genetic code. Uh, in the Aspen seminar, which I um, direct for, for the Institute, we spend a lot of time in our leadership development talking about human nature. And I think one of the voices that never gets into that conversation sufficiently uh, is the scientific or genetic one. So this is an especially important panel, not only in and, in and of its own sake, um, but also for the broader uh, picture uh, it presents in leadership uh, development. Uh, our moderator today is Chris Kyberian. He's president of Intellectual Property and Science Business for Thomas Reuters. And I'll turn things over to you, Chris. Thanks. Thank you, Todd. Well, and thank you all for coming today. Um, you know, it's really an honor to, uh, to host this panel. And it's a very big topic, cracking the genetic code. So we've got about an hour to crack the genetic code. Um, so the reality is, since it is a big topic, what we're really trying to do is frame the conversation. And what we're doing is framing the conversation around a fundamental question, which is what fundamentally has to happen that's not happening to advance the science in order for us to get to the treatments um, and the, and the life-saving uh, you know, uh, you know, therapeutics that are going to change and improve humankind. So when we think about this profound innovation, we think about the innovation life cycle. There's a discovery phase, there's a development phase, and there's a delivery to market of these world's great innovations. We're somewhere in between discovery and development, and we're also somewhere between the public sector and the private sector. So we've, we've uh, assembled a panel uh, that represents private funding institutions, uh, public academic research institutions, as well as the private sector. Because as you'll see through the conversation, I think, today, um, it is a, you know, a complex, coordinated uh, collaboration between and among the private sector that's going to take this profound technology to, uh, to market, to you, to me, you know, for, you know, for the people we love and care about. Um, so with that, um, you know, I'd like to actually introduce our, you know, our panel. Um, you know, to my left, we have Dr. Uh, John Quackenbush, uh, author of the book, Human Genome. Um, and uh, he's a, a professor at uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute as well as Harvard. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Krakenbush. Uh, we're also uh, joined by Dr. Brian Fisk. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Fisk started out his career um, as, uh, as an editor at, uh, at Nature Neuroscience and in 2004 uh, went to head research for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Um, we're also joined um, by uh, uh, Dr. Paul Rato, uh, Director of Computational Biology and Oncology Research at Pfizer. Um, he started his career 20 years ago in, in, in biotech and uh, worked for a company that got bought by another company that got bought by another company that is emblematic of, in many respects, how, you know, how this industry works and evolves. Uh, and you know, we're, we're just very pleased to have uh, people representing um, the major constituencies that are going to take this, this profound science to the marketplace. And so uh, before we start off with our, with our first question, uh, I was kind of hoping that uh, since Dr. Quackenbush did write the book, The Human Genome, um, if he could give us a five-minute primer of uh, a century of worth of science up until this present and see if he can do it in five minutes. So, Dr. Quackenbush. All right. Ready? Yeah. Begin. All right. That's very loud. I used to teach a class of 600 students uh, with no microphone, and the only complaint I got from students was that I was too loud. So I always get very afraid when I have a microphone on. Um, so you know, the, what's the, what is the human genome? Well, the, the way to start thinking about this is that your, your body is made up of cells. 
And each and every cell is like a little machine. It's a machine made of proteins. Okay? So what's the blueprint that tells your body how to make those proteins and assemble the cells? Well, inside every cell, there's a molecule called DNA. And encoded in that DNA are regions called genes, which are blueprints for proteins. Okay? So the genome is actually the collection of all of the DNA in each and every one of your cells. Okay? And what that represents is the collection of all of the blueprints for the proteins that make up your body. Now, it's really like a parts list, and there's a lot involved with understanding how it all gets put together. Right? You have brain cells and liver cells, and hopefully your brain cells are doing something slightly different than your liver cells, which means the pieces have to be put together in different ways. In a lot of the work we do focused on disease, we have normal cells and disease cells, and the pieces get put together slightly differently. But the starting point for understanding all of this is to understand what is encoded in the DNA. Okay? So DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. It's a molecule, it's a polymer, so it's made up of many, many different subunits that are nearly identical. The subunits in DNA are called bases. They're A, C, G, and T, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. And uh, the structure of DNA was determined in 1953 in a paper that was published by Watson and Crick. Absolutely beautiful paper, describes its structure. And it's actually a double-stranded molecule. You have A, C's, G's, and T's, A, C's, G's, and T's, and they actually pair together. So A always pairs with T, C always pairs with G. And it's an absolutely beautiful structure because every time your cells divide, those two pieces pull apart, but since they pair together, you can make new strands that carry that information. So it's a way of propagating information from one generation to the next in your cells. A long time ago, we recognized that damage to DNA can cause mutations or changes, and that those changes can lead to the development of disease, right? Because DNA encodes a protein. If you imagine putting your car together and have the wrong size bolts, right, you're not going to be able to put the car together. Or if you have a, a series of defective bolts, they'll pop off and your car will fall apart. In the same way, as we start to accumulate mutations, the machinery in the cells starts to break down and you can develop disease. Okay? And again, there's a lot of complex regulation and processes involved, but it comes down to the idea that DNA is blueprints for proteins. So in the 1990s, a project started the Human Genome Project, and the goal was to read off this series of ACs, Gs, and Ts. And it was a major endeavor. Uh, the reason it was such a major endeavor is that there's a lot of information in the DNA. Okay? So inside your cell, you have two copies of DNA, one from mom, one from dad. Each copy is 3 billion bases long. Okay? 3 billion is a number that's hard for most of us to grasp. Right? It's larger than my salary um, by a bit. It's smaller than the national debt by a lot. But to put it in context, 3 billion is the number of seconds in 95 years. Okay? So if you read off a base a second, if you had a good long life, you'd finish one of the two copies you had and then die. Okay? Or then start the next one and hopefully live for another 95 years. Um, so this first genome was sequenced and finished in 2000 and polished and cleaned over the next few years. But what's really extraordinary is with that template, with that roadmap that represents an approximation of all of us, uh, new technologies were developed over the last few years. And since 2007, these new technologies have accelerated the pace at which we can generate 
data on individuals. So the first genome took about 15 years, uh, cost about $3 billion. Uh, since 2007, the cost has been falling by 33% per quarter. If you look at the regression line, the slope, and you say, when do you hit the $1,000 genome? The prediction that I made two years ago was that you'd hit it in October of, uh, October of 2012. In January of this year, two companies announced instruments that should deliver a genome sequence for about 1000 bucks in 24 hours. Okay? And if you follow that curve, you hit the $100 genome in 2014. And that's probably not off by more than a factor of two in cost or six months in time. So our ability to generate data on each and every one of us um, and our genetic makeup is just extraordinary and opens up lots of possibilities, which we're going to be talking about. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> what you was know? the time? I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I am available for parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the first fundamental question has, has to do with, you know, the, the potential for this technology. I think for average citizens, I mean, you know, for people who are also non-scientists, can you all explain sort of what you find personally and professionally most exciting and most compelling about what this technology can do for humankind? And maybe, Dr. Rado, you can start with that question. So I, I guess for me personally, I work in the area of, of cancer therapy for a pharmaceutical company. And we are facing some major challenges in terms of becoming more efficient and being able to deliver effective therapies to patients more quickly. Unfortunately, we're experiencing essentially the reverse type of Moore's Law that Dr. Quackenbush mentioned. The cost of drugs is increasing exponentially, where there was a paper recently published where it crossed the threshold of a billion dollars of cost um, about 10 years ago, and it's still going up. So we have a major challenge in terms of being able to address that. And to me, what's personally exciting is the ability of a better understanding of the disease biology. Uh, as Dr. Quackenbush mentioned, uh, DNA is replicated when cells divide. And you have about 100 trillion cells in your body, an enormous number. And any, if any one of those becomes a bad actor, it can start to replicate, and that can lead to cancer. If it accumulates a number of defects, it can lead to cancer. So what's exciting to me is we get a better understanding of the, of the genetics of the disease in people, and that will allow us to get a deeper understanding of how we might target those, um, those defective genes. The second thing for us in the pharmaceutical industry is that we need to have what we call model systems that allow us to study experimentally the disease before we go into testing in people. There are years and years of time that we spend preclinically before we test in people to try to develop an effective therapy. And the models that we have, which are usually cells in test tubes, aren't very predictive of what's going to happen in, in humans. And that's part of the reason why things are so expensive and so slow. And so by getting a better understanding of the human disease biology and matching it up to the preclinical cell biology, we hope to have a better way of being able to predict what's going to happen as we translate from preclinical into the clinical space. And the final excitement for me is in the area of diagnostics. What we're learning in cancer is that it's incredibly heterogeneous across individuals. We're not dealing with a single disease. We're not even dealing with a single, say, breast cancer or lung cancer. It's enormously heterogeneous. There are many, many ways of things going wrong, and therefore many, many distinct causes of those cancers. And the promise of understanding the genetics is that we can target those very specifically. But because of this heterogeneity, this diversity, the, any um, cancer 
that's driven by a particular type of genetic defect is likely to be present in only a small fraction of individuals. And so a treatment that's going to be effective against those individuals will only work in a small fraction of the population. We need to be able to identify those individuals before we treat. And diagnostics is the, is the approach that allows us to do that. And some of the new technologies that we're talking about will enable that. So those three things to me are what makes it enormously exciting. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, so I work for a nonprofit foundation focused on Parkinson's disease. So for us, it's a complex brain disorder. Uh, most of the symptoms are caused in large part by loss of brain cells that produce the brain chemical dopamine involved in uh, uh, control of movement and, and things like that. So it's, uh, it's a very devastating disease. It's progressive. There's no cure. Um, so for us, genetics, and the disease is, is partly genetic, uh, maybe about 10% or so uh, can really be clearly linked to some specific genetic mutations. But the vast majority, frankly, is what we kind of call sporadic disease. We don't, we don't really, really know what the cause of the disease is, although we think there may be some genetic components to it. So it's, it's a struggle for us looking at through the lens that we look through, which is how do we actually deliver treatments to people with uh, this complex brain disorder. Uh, and so a lot of the, I think, the issues that you, that you raise are actually very similar for us and is how genetics can help inform that. It can really help us understand what are the biological targets we could be developing drugs against and how to actually move those targets forward. Um, it also can help us understand what is this Parkinson's disease that we talk about. It's really almost really a syndrome in a way. It's a multiple uh, set of diseases that may all have different causes. So there are some people who probably have a very clear single gene mutation that caused their disease. There are other people out there who probably have some mixture of environment and genetic predisposition that caused their disease. And are, those, are both of those Parkinson's disease or not? And so this, this concept of diagnostics, I think, is really clear because if you're develop, trying to develop drugs for, for a population with a, with a disease, you need to know what you're actually trying to treat under, under the hood, so to speak. Um, I, you know, I think there's an interesting uh, aspect here, too, about genetics that, for, at least for, for me, for what we do at the foundation, is of all the complex questions we're trying to address, these complex, this complex brain disorder, the complex fact that it's in the brain in the first place, um, is this concept that genetics is at least scientifically, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, is like <laughs> one of the few questions that I think we have the technology to actually answer. We could actually sequence, we have the technology and by October, you know, whatever you said, in a few months' time, $100, you know, genome. We could actually sequence every single person in this room, and if we knew enough about what diseases you have in your family and everything else like that, we could actually get some real uh, meaningful insight into uh, what might be causing those diseases. So for me, that's a very compelling thing because a lot of the other stuff our foundation works on and trying to understand the mechanisms of why certain cells die in, in Parkinson's disease and not others uh, those are really complex biological questions that you know, are really hard to address, but this is one part of that puzzle that we think we can really answer. What do you find most exciting? All right, so uh, I'll give you three answers. The first has to do with disease. And um, both Brian and Peter alluded to this, that genetic factors influence our risk of developing disease. But it's, genetics isn't, in most diseases... Uh, a predeterministic sentence. It doesn't sentence you to developing disease. There are a few mutations, a handful of them, where if you carry the mutation, you'll develop the disease. Jim Watson, who discovered the structure of DNA, was one of the first people to have his genome sequenced. And among the mutations he carried was one for a disease called Usher's syndrome, which leads to deafness. Okay? If you ever met Watson, he's not deaf. Right? What happens is genetics sort of slants the odds. It tilts the playing field a little bit. That there's genes, environment, 
and chance, right? Sometimes you're just unlucky and you develop disease, even if you have good genes, even if you, um, you know, eat well, don't smoke, do all the things, lead a healthy lifestyle, disease is going to hit all of us. It's part of the natural process of being alive. But, you know, we can weight the odds in our favor by, you know, understanding our genetic risk. And all the things that um, both my colleagues talked about in terms of better understanding and treating disease, better detecting disease, are things we can do as part of that picture. The second piece that I find really exciting has nothing to do with disease. It's about understanding who we are, what we are, how we fit into life on this planet. Humans evolved in Africa, came out of Africa 170,000 years ago, spread across the planet. That migration is buried in our DNA. Um, and we have lots of evidence that, that tells us about how humans spread across the planet. We have evidence in, buried in our DNA about how we evolved from lower forms of life. We share about 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Uh, our protein encoding genes in our genome are about 85% identical to a mouse. Okay? I mean, it's just astonishing how well, these conserved, uh, how well conserved these are. Many human genes will actually function in yeast or bacteria. Okay? And we've discovered the function of some human genes by understanding the function of similar genes in bacteria or yeast. There's this tremendous continuity across life on the planet um, that's just buried in our DNA. And you know, it really puts sort of racial and ethnic differences in perspective when you know, I can take my, I, our DNA is 99.9% .9 identical, right? I can give any one of you a blood transfusion because I have O negative blood. We all eat the same food, we breathe the same air. If there were women of the right age with bad taste in men and my wife didn't find out, you know, we could have children, um, which I would never do, honey. Um, but, um, you know, on a very fundamental level, we are very, very similar. And that's really just written in our DNA. The third piece, which just gets me out of bed every morning, is the idea that we really stand on the brink of a revolution. It's a revolution in understanding in science. And the biggest revolutions in science have been driven by one and only one thing, data. In the late 1800s, there was a revolution in physics taking us from Newton's classical mechanics to quantum mechanics, statistical mechanics, and relativity, all of which was driven by the availability of data. When we're in the position where we can have a $100 genome, right, and sequence everybody in this room, not only am I going to give my wife her genome for Christmas, Right? So she can find out that instead of being a Spartan with her proud Greek heritage, she's actually Persian or Turkish or something horrible. <laughs> right? um, you know, we have the opportunity to generate uh, so much data that we can actually start to understand all of the questions that all of us are really interested in exploring from a scientific basis. And that, I think, is going to revolutionize our understanding of ourselves, understanding of disease, our understanding of almost everything. <laughs> you know, we hear a lot about the phrase of personalized medicine. Right, or patient segmentation. And in many respects, you know, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I know when I heard it, I thought, okay, I'm going to get a pill. <laughs> it's got my name on it. It's going to cure whatever, I, you know, whatever ails me. But what, what, is, what is personalized medicine really, how do you think it's really going to evolve for people in this room? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, so again, maybe going back to the point about not really knowing, so Parkinson's disease, again, it's, it's diagnosed purely on symptoms right now. So you go into your doctor with certain movement disorder symptoms and they call it Parkinson's disease. But you don't really, again, know what's underneath that's causing that. There are a lot of things that could actually lead to that. 
stroke-related uh, issues can actually lead to a Parkinson's-like disease. So I think just being able to actually peer inside there and actually know bi biologically and mechanistically what are the different kinds of diseases out there will help and actually almost reshape our view of what disease is. And we may find that, yes, there still are large sub, uh, sub sections of the population that have the same disease and you can develop sort of more classical drug approaches to, to that approach. But you may also find that there are a lot of people who have these more sort of sort of private, you know, kind of diseases that really are only related to their own specific uh, condition and families. But so I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's happening. I think it's, it's something we have to think about from a drug development standpoint. Maybe a lot of these things are still the same pathway. Maybe they all converge on the same ultimate mechanism for how that cell dies in a disease. Uh, or grows you know, over if it's cancer, uh, and so you can still develop, you know, you know, uh, common types of drugs. But you know, I think it's it's headed that direction. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. To me, I, I guess one one point is it's a more molecular or mechanistic understanding of disease, mm -hmm. and the reason that's enabling is because if you can start to, as as was mentioned, uh, divide disease, which may look at the surface from a symptomatic point of view as, as being the same, but really has different underlying causes, that allows you to start thinking about treating that in different ways. And I think to me, maybe internally, we're starting to talk more about what we could say precision medicine as opposed to personalized medicine. It may not be directed specifically at what is your very personal uh, variant, but it would be against a variant that's uh, present in a fraction of the population, and you would be more likely to be responsive when you're treated with a drug that's targeting that, that approach. So we're already seeing that it's personalized medicine even today, mm -hmm. right? I, I think the best, best example is in breast cancer. And um, you know, cancer is far ahead of most other diseases in terms of our molecular understanding, what's happening with the DNA. I, I puzzled over this for a long time, and I realized the answer is really simple. If you have heart disease, you go to your physician, you say, fix me, right? You have cancer, you go to your physician, you say, cut it out of me. And because we have tissue sample available from the primary disease, it's really given us a lot of insight. We used to think about breast cancer as being breast cancer. And what we now recognize is there are at least three major molecular subtypes, and that those molecular subtypes are different in the way their DNA message is played out. You can detect them now fairly easily. They're easy, inexpensive tests. And depending on which type of breast cancer you have, there's some very effective therapies that have dramatically improved outcome. Okay? So we may not know all of the genetic mutations that a particular patient carries, but we're starting to recognize that disease actually is heterogeneous. There are multiple types. It's not necessarily just what tissue it developed in, but there's a lot more to it. And that allows us to personalize care in a very real way. I was just at a meeting um, in Europe. It was the... Uh, um, uh, I just forgot the acronym. WIN. Uh, WIN, yes. So it's Worldwide Innovation Networks in Cancer Research. And what, uh, one of the talks there made a really good point, that we used to think about cancer as being a disease of a tissue. What we're starting to recognize is that cancer is actually a molecular disease, and that if you have breast cancer but you carry a mutation uh, that's targeted by a drug that was developed and works in melanoma, skin cancer, that that drug may work in you. 
And so uh, sort of getting to personalized medicine, we may be able to get to the point where we can combine therapies, standard breast cancer therapies, plus additional therapies that target mutations. The other really interesting thing, you know, sort of going to Parkinson's disease, right? You've got two cancer guys with the sandwich, uh, you know, <laughs> neurological disease guy. Uh, I like but, to pick up the brain. But, you know, one of the things we're seeing is a lot of the same pathways go awry in many different diseases, right? That it's the machine breaking down, and it doesn't necessarily care if it's in the brain or the liver or the kidney. But the manifestation may depend on where it happens. But it's a lot of the same mechanism. So we're starting to recognize, too, that what we learn in, in Parkinson's disease may well have applications in other diseases. Yeah. There's a good example of that. So we, um, in Parkinson's, there's one of the genetic forms. Again, it's you know, maybe 1% to 2% of all cases, so it's not, not going to explain everybody. But uh, it's in a, a, mut a mutation in a gene called LRRK2. Uh, it's found predominantly in people of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. So it's, you know, in, that, in that particular population, it, it's particularly prevalent. But uh, what's interesting about it is that that same gene has actually been linked to several other disorders, including um, inflammatory bowel diseases, as well as leprosy, which we know have a strong immune component. And we're starting to realize now that in Parkinson's, there actually may be a strong immune sort of inflammation, neuroinflammation component in the disease that this gene may actually be pointing to. So it's actually sort of, in a way, revolutionizing some of our understanding of drugs we could go after. We've always been thinking about we have to go to the brain, we have to go to the actual dopamine cells themselves to fix them. Well, maybe we actually just have to give them an anti-inflammatory that will keep their immune system you know, down and not responding so aggressively, and maybe that will actually cure the disease. And so I think this idea of kind of looking at other mechanisms and letting the genetics kind of help guide you there I think is really compelling. And from a drug development standpoint, certainly this idea of what I think the different words for, but we use the word repositioning, which is mm -hmm. taking a drug that was for one indication and then saying, wait a second, mechanistically, it might actually be hitting on the same pathways that are relevant to this disease. Let's actually try it in this population. And if you're lucky, and this is something that the Fox Foundation has been doing a lot lately, um, if that drug's already been approved or it's already been shown to be safe in humans, that can cut out a lot of the, the work you have to do to actually bring a, a drug to patients because you can actually say, okay, I already showed it at this dose it's safe and I don't really need to do all that work again. I just need to sort of get some quick proof of concept that it works in a Parkinson's model of some kind and then actually do the clinical trial in people with the disease that, that I care about, which is Parkinson's disease. And that you've cut out years of some of that work and you can kind of fast track it right, uh, right to the clinic. Well, maybe we'll switch gears for a little bit and, and start to talk a bit about what has to change from a policy perspective to accelerate the pace of development? I think we're all pretty compelled by the fact that, look, there's, this is a, there are potential breakthroughs that could potentially change all of our lives. And, you know, we, we, and you know, I mean, you know sort of how this works, how this, not just how the science works, but how research gets done, how clinical trials gets done. How, what has to change to accelerate the pace of development? Because we, we do hear about the fact that it is, there are funding challenges, there are all sorts of different challenges that, preclude us from getting to that last mile of, of, that, of, that, you know, of those breakthroughs. So what, what has to change? You want to start? Take. Uh, I, I think one, one area where probably all of us have seen uh, efforts is in transparency and in collaboration. Uh, I think partnership across uh, companies that are trying to develop therapeutics, uh, academics who are generating uh, exciting information that can be applied, um, and funding agencies and patient groups um, is a critical kind of nexus of interest that comes together to drive progress. Um, so I, I, think, I think 
encouraging more collaboration, and there are efforts along that, more transparency, I think, is a critical kind of uh, process that we need to encourage. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I mean, when I sort of think about it for us, it's about three sort of the ingredients you need to actually tackle a problem like, you know, understanding the genetics of Parkinson's. Um, in our case, you know, you need obviously the technology, and it sounds like the technology really isn't the, the bottleneck here. Um, you need um, the access to people, so you need an engagement. There's a big engagement part of this. You know, people, I think, in general, in the public, in patient community, don't always fully understand the role genetics play or what it even means to sort of, you know, uh, get involved in genetic studies. They think of it sort of in the classic sense of gene causes disease, and they don't, you know, fully understand. So I think there's an education and an engagement there to actually get people involved in genetic studies, because there are plenty of families out there that probably carry mutations that would explain a lot of disease, but they just don't even know or aren't even aware of the fact that their family history of whatever it is may have a genetic cause. Um, and then there's this, I think, this last part, which is really this collaborative bit, which is it's a lot of data. It's not, you know, it's no single lab is going to sort of crack the code, so to speak. You really need to share that data. That data has to come together, so you need the platforms to actually make that data shareable, so that's really a technology bit right there as well. But you need the incentives, and I know you, we were talking about before <laughs> beforehand, you know, in the academic world, incentives for that kind of collaboration and sharing aren't really there. Uh, and it's, it, it's a challenge that we face. We're constantly through our funding. We can put it in our contracts and our grant uh, mechanisms, requirements for sharing and collaboration and things like that. But it's a bigger, a bigger piece than that. You have to create, uh, you have to really fix a broken system really more than just sort of require one investigator to talk to another. So I don't know if you, you want to expand on that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on you know, from your perspective. Well, I, I think, you know, one of the challenges is just sharing data and information across the board. Right? I mean, is Pfizer going to give away their data to Merck? Well, probably not, right? But there probably is some data that they could share if there was a mechanism and incentive to do it. Uh, one of the things we see um, you know, as an academic is that my career advancement is based on me publishing papers and getting research grants. Well, if I share my data and somebody else publishes before I do, there's a big disincentive to me to share that data because I'm not going to get you know, on the front page of the New York Times, uh, or more importantly, get promoted to full professor. Um, and, you know, for people, that's really important. Hospitals, uh, universities want to hold on to data because they can file patents on the discoveries that come from those data. So there are all these disincentives um, to sharing data and information. I, I think there are ways to solve those problems. I think one of the most important, and this is one of the things I really like about disease foundations and how they are changing the face of biomedical research, is they're getting patients more involved. Because quite honestly, if you have Parkinson's, you have much more interest in having your data shared by anybody who can use it to discover a cure than I might as a scientist. Even if he's funding me and telling me to share data, I still want to hold on to it. But if the patients say, look, you guys have control of the data. You can give it to pharma. You can give it to academics. You can give it to anybody who is going to use it. That's really useful. The other thing you have to do, though, and, and I think this is one of our greatest challenges today, is you've got to fund science. Um, the budget at the NIH has been, at best, flat. The funding level right now at most NIH institutes is below the 10th percentile. Okay? So less than 10% of the grants that get submitted get funded. Okay? What that means is that a lot of really good, innovative ideas simply aren't supported any longer. There's no funding to do research. 
I'm a pretty well-established scientist. I'm struggling to keep my grant funding. I have a whole set of grants that came in between the 10th and 12th percentile. Really good ideas. The reviews from my colleagues say, these are great ideas, they should be done, and there's no money to do them. For junior scientists just getting started, their chance of getting funded is incredibly small because they're competing with established people who have you know, good track records, even if they have brilliant ideas. It's very, very difficult for them to get started. So I think we're facing this crisis in science where there's no money to support innovation. It's, yeah, it's an interesting challenge, though, too, because it's not just the, I mean, money, I think, is key, obviously, but, uh, and it's, it, but there's an aspect, and this gets back to the collaboration part, which I think is really important, where, so at our foundation, my team and I, we probably review 900-plus proposals, really interesting, a lot of them, uh, proposals on Parkinson's disease, anything from mechanistic studies to clinical trials. And it's uh, you know, always a challenge to try to figure out which of these we should prioritize and fund, because obviously we can't fund all 900. But um, you know, one thing I, I've gleaned from seeing all of those every year is just the amount of duplication of effort that happens. And, and obviously, in any sort of complex question, it's great to have multiple people sort of asking the same questions and looking at it in different ways. And so you want that kind of duplication of effort to some degree, but there's a lot of duplication too of even just creating the infrastructure to even answer those questions. The same methods, the same, you know, where you want to develop our own genetic, you know, cohort of people and we're going to, you know, uh, have a whole, you know, we need a million dollars to basically have people come to our clinic and actually collect that data uh, when I know that John's already collected probably all that data already, you know, two years ago. So there's a lot of that duplication that I think that can make that process maybe a little bit more efficient so that maybe that funding line can actually support some of that critical work that needs to happen, but just in a hopefully a little bit more efficient sort of uh, uh, prioritized way. What, what makes the analysis so complex? I mean, we all, you guys talk a lot about big data, like just the sense of the magnitudes of why do you need so much data? Like what, what's the data... Anyway, what just, what just makes it so complex is one of the things you said also was that there's no one group that can do this, right? I mean, and why, I'm just curious why that is. You probably play in the data sets more than I do, but uh, so. Well, so, yeah. you know, we've talked a little bit about genetic risk, right? And you've heard that come up a few times, that uh, a mutation is not necessarily a death sentence. It sort of slants the playing field a little bit, okay? So if I were to take your DNA and read its sequence, and I'm assuming most of you are pretty healthy, right? The chance that I'm going to learn anything from just your genetic sequence that I could tell you that would actually be meaningful for you in terms of healthcare is pretty small, right? It's close to zero. There are a handful of mutations which are really deterministic. But what we see are a lot of subtle effects, right? And those subtle effects, only that signal, right, that needle in the haystack, only comes up if you've got enough hay to sort through to find needles and associate them with, you know, what they're causing. And that's the real problem is we need a lot of data. We also need clinical information. We need to know whether you develop disease or don't develop disease. We need to know that kind of information. And trying to pull all of those diverse sources of data and information together is really a challenge. People say, well, you have big data, right? You have uh, six billion bases of my DNA, isn't that a lot of data? Yes, but there's a lot of stuff in there. And so we really need to, to pull all of this data together. One of the exciting things about the falling cost of technology is the idea that we can be in a position to generate that data. But we've got to build the infrastructure that allows us to effectively share data. We've got to connect the dots. We've got to link these groups together. 
so that people can leverage data. And I think we've got to change, I, I keep on coming back to this, is the only way to break the logjam. We've got to change the ownership equation, right? You've got to be able to own your own DNA. Myriad Genetics found a mutation in a gene um, called BRCA1. It, it has an increased risk for breast cancer, okay? If I were to take your DNA and I were to look for a BRCA1 mutation, and if I told you that you carry that mutation, I'd be violating Myriad's patents. I would violate Myriad's patents, right? Which is crazy, right? The, the fact that you are, you know, if you look, I don't know if you'd be violating their patents. You might be. A friend of mine, Steve Salzberg, put a, a program up on the web where you can load in your BRCA1 sequence and it will report it back to you. And since he doesn't actually report anything to you, you're running your own thing. You know, he sort of skated out of trouble. But the idea that people can go through and patent these genes and own them and own diagnostic tests is a challenge. So I, I think we've got to come back to the fact that individuals have to own their own genetic information. Should we all be going out and getting, you know, our, our gene sequenced? I mean, does that help the body of science? Or is it, are we just curious about what our natural proclivities of, for disease are? I mean, what, how, should, how should we be thinking about this? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a challenge. I mean, so for our, the community that we serve, you know, it's every, we get asked that all the time. Like, should I go get genetically tested for this handful of genes that have been linked to the disease so far? I think by and large, we tend to tell people probably not. I mean, again, you know, 90% of the disease is not really going to be linked to these handful of genes that we've, we've found so far unless you really fall into kind of a very narrow category of clear family history, maybe certain ethnicity groups, that kind of thing. Um, so it's, uh, I, I think it's a challenge. So I think to your point, though, it's really about the data we can collect today may ultimately inform the kinds of insight we can get tomorrow. And so I think if we can build these infrastructures and get people engaged in these kinds of studies now, collect that kind of data because we can collect it, then I think those, as the discovery and the more insight into the disease comes out, we're able to then more quickly uh, address those questions. You know, oh, sorry, go ahead. But it's not about diagnosis today, I guess, is really the, the point. To me, there's a distinction there between cancer and, and most other genetic diseases. And, and cancer, personally, I, I would want to know as much information if I or any member of my family uh, had a tumor, because I think it is enabling um, in terms of making treatment decisions. And the community is, is without question, moving in that direction. And probably one important uh, note here is that the tumor genome is different than what we call your germline genome, the genome that you, know, you inherited from your parents. So that what happens in, in cancer is that the cells accumulate mutations that basically cause them to grow out of control. And it's those mutations that cause cancer and actually give cancer its unique characteristics that drugs incre increasingly are starting to target. Uh, we may find in other diseases that the tissue itself has accumulated particular somatic mutations that drive the disease as well, but nowhere is, is, is it as dramatic as it is in cancer. Interesting. Well, I mean, as citizens, you know, what, what should we be advocating for? If we want to advance science, we want to support this body of knowledge, we, we, you know, we want, we want the, to see the fruits of, you know, the, of the labor that, that all your institutions are working on, what should we be advocating for? I mean, who should we be writing to? What should, you know, what should we be thinking about and saying to people to, you know, to, to advance you know, science here? Well, I think this, the point you raised about if, if, you know, and obviously we want people to be involved in sort of scientific research and, 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 and the studies and clinical studies and things like that. And I think this piece of understanding what data is being collected from you and 
understanding how it's being used and actually participating in that discussion. You know, uh, you have to sign a consent form usually when you get into any kind of clinical study. In that consent form, it talks a lot about what people can do with your data and really understanding that and actually maybe even demanding that your data be used in certain ways and be made available for, for other kinds of research. Because if you don't have that conversation, what's usually going to happen is that data is going to go into some scientist's you know, notebook and probably never see the light of day with anybody else. And so I think that being more involved in that, in that, in that kind of way, I think from a scientific sort of research perspective is, is one area that you can, you can step in on. But, you know, I, I think we just have to start framing the discussion about what's going to happen when data is available, right? I have a little boy. His name is Adam. He's six years old. By the time he's 15, I guarantee his genome is going to be sequenced. But I don't want it on Facebook, right? There are things that you may learn about yourself by looking at that DNA, or someone else might learn, that can cause problems, right? My grandmother died of Alzheimer's. There's a gene called APOE. Mutations in APOE are associated with increased risk for Alzheimer's. But there's no treatment today, right? So if I had my genome sequenced and found out I had an APOE mutation, what would I actually do with that information, right? What if I sequenced my son's genome and found out that his father wasn't the person I thought it was, right? <laughs> and that happens. In genetic studies, about 10% of children uh, suffer from what we call mispaternity, okay? <laughs> Where the parents' the father's DNA typically doesn't match the child's. And it turns out the, the frequency is greater in second children, so you can think about the sociology and psychology of that, right? You're happy, everything's fine, then it gets rocky, uh, neighbor looks good. Uh, but, you know, how do you deal with that? How, I, I've always, since I started working on the Genome Project, I said the greatest argument for universal health care is the genome because all of us carry some pre-existing risk factor for disease, right? We all are going to die. Something's going to take us. We have risk factors. You know, if, you, if I carry an APOA mutation, do I want my health insurance policy specifically to exclude Alzheimer's? And every, they'll cover everything else, right? So I, I think we, start to ha we have to have a frank discussion about what we're going to do with this data, what it means as a society, what the implications, the ethical, social, and legal implications are. I think the other piece is that we really have to recognize that this is an important area to support. Science is so devalued. Right? The government over the last few years has been so anti-intellectual in so many ways. I mean, Sarah Palin talking about fruit fly research when the research project she was talking about was associated with Down syndrome, you know, which her child suffers from. I mean, you know, why do we work in these animals? Well, it's because we're so genetically similar and we can do experiments in animals that tell us about human disease. And we've got to, you know, really educate ourselves, educate our, our government about the importance of this research, why it's so valuable, and why it's worth supporting. Why we don't want to disenfranchise the next generation of scientists by cutting back on research so that you know, they go and work for Wall Street where they can make a lot more money. Uh, you know, it, I think a lot of people have passion to do this. And what we have to do is incentivize them to do it. The other piece that, that I, you know, hasn't, has, we talked about a little bit earlier and hasn't really come up in discussion is partnerships, right? We have industry, we have academia, we have um, foundations, and, you know, none of us can do this alone. What we have to do is create an environment and resources to allow us to share this. In, in the interest of full disclosure, one of my colleagues and I actually started a company earlier this year called Genospace, and the whole idea is we want to build an infrastructure where different organizations can effectively share data. And it's built around the idea that people should own their own genetic information. 
And I think that's one of the fundamental principles that we want to try to embrace so that we can effectively share information with the consent of the people who actually should own that data to try to advance cures. You know, we can't do it without you know, really good scientists being involved in, in making decisions about what should be funded, and they're tough decisions. We can't do it without really good scientists working in industry to try to take what we discover and translate it in a very real way into drugs, something which academics or foundations aren't very good at doing. So as patients, we should be more open with data. We should be more inclined to participate in trials. We should you know, sign consents potentially a bit more freely. Is that... You know, yeah. I, mean, I guess too. I mean, for some people, you know, who get more financially invested in the science as well, I think that it's also thinking about these sort of bigger collaborative efforts. You know, I think a lot of you know donors will often tend to go to where they know best, which is their local doctor, or their local university, and sort of give money directly that way. And I think it's worth thinking about, you know, as if you're as being an educated donor and thinking about, okay, what is the best impact for the dollars that I want to invest in something and think about investing in more of these kinds of collaborative efforts rather than just you know, the one group who, again, is, might be repeating the wheel of six other groups out there and not really sharing any information. So I think you, know, you can educate yourself beyond just the science and, and, and also how you get involved. As, as patients, I would recommend getting engaged and getting involved, as we've talked about. I think as, as society, we also need to be patient and be realistic about what our expectations are. The technology is getting better and getting cheaper, but the really tough problems in terms of translating things into, into treatments is very difficult. It is not going to get solved overnight. We're making incremental progress, but it's a war of attrition. It's not going to be something where overnight we're going to completely solve that. So we have to recognize that we're in this for the long haul, that it's in, in very large investment, but I think it's also important to get the message out across that we are making progress. In cancer, we are making progress. Things are getting better. We're making more dramatic progress in specific areas, and we're going to continue to do that, but it's a very slow process. So the other piece would be advocating for that investment, but also taking that long-term view, because I don't think this is the kind of thing where we're going to suddenly solve things. I mean, should we be looking to you know, public sector institutions to help create the, the collaborative environment so public and private can, you know, share data? Or is, I mean, do you, do you feel this is more of a private sector type solution? I mean, granted, you guys both, it, it's, it's, it's shared to some degree, but do you think it leans one way or the other? I think it's a, yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, obviously, you'd love this kind of stuff to be supported by, you know, government, NIH, and things like that. But I think it's a difficult problem for them. I mean, the, the, the NIH organization we deal with mostly is the NINDS, which is the Neurologic Disease Agency. And, uh, you know, they, they're in charge of, like, 60 different brain diseases, and Parkinson's is just one of them. So we can't really expect them to strategically every day come in every day the way that, that I and my team have to think nothing about Parkinson's and uh, think only about Parkinson's. And so that's, that's a, a challenge where I think you have to then have that sort of almost the champion groups out there that are the private disease-focused organizations that can really come in and look at that big picture and make sure that Parkinson's or whatever disease you're interested in is, is, you know, is, is part of the discussion and conversation. To me, I, I think it has to, the early stage efforts to really advance the knowledge should be driven primarily through pub, public institutions. I think as, as a private uh, company, we're very much interested in supporting that and, and, and seeing that happen, but we don't want to own that area. We really want to drive that knowledge creation so that we can then try to 
leverage that and translate that into, into treatments, which we can drive things forward. So, so to me, I think, I think that early effort needs to be primarily um, in, in the public domain, and we need to do a better job at, at sharing that where we can. Well, I, I think Paul made a great point, and that is we have to take the long view. I, I was very disappointed when the human genome was announced finished, and everybody said, mm -hmm. the genome is finished. We're going to understand all human disease. Yep. Right? It's like Columbus landing in Hispaniola and saying, I've discovered the new world. We now know the entire landscape of North and South America. Right? We have a toehold in our understanding of genetic disease. We're almost forced to sell it and say, we're going to you know, cure disease tomorrow to get investment because everybody wants a short-term investment and short-term payback. It's not a short-term process. But you know, we are, it's not like we're not making progress. In the 1950s, 90% of kids with leukemia died. Today, 90% of kids with leukemia live. And what we're doing is we're chipping away at that other 10%. And part of doing that is looking at the mutations and trying to understand what they are and how to develop therapies. So you know, we're, we're, we're really wrestling with a, a very tough problem. Right? Where again, it comes back to the fact that a lot of our genes give us subtle effects. But I think the thing that's really exciting about this is that when we look at disease, right? if I were to take anybody's genome here and you're healthy, the chance that I could sequence your genome and tell you something interesting and useful is close to zero. Right? I can tell you about your ethnicity, whether you have sticky earwax. Right? They're cheaper tests for those things, like a mirror and a finger. Um, right? but. If you came in with a, a particular disease and we had access to your genomic information, so we had your genome sequence, we could look at what genes are turned on and off, right? Looking at expression analysis, what genes are expressed. We could look at the proteins. If we look at how your DNA is actually altered chemically in different cells to turn genes on and off, we could take all that information together and get much more useful information that's relevant to treating disease. There's a paper that was published in the last month or two where they looked at cancer patients and they sequenced the uh, coding region of a few hundred genes. So they took um, the, the important part of DNA for a few hundred genes. And, and over half the patients, they actually found mutations that were relevant for therapy. They either said, this therapy will be bad for you because your body won't metabolize the drug properly, won't react properly, or um, here's, a particular, here's a suggestion for a particular therapy that might be beneficial to you because we have drugs that target that mutation. In many other diseases, we're starting to see the same thing. There, there's a brilliant study that was published earlier this year uh, from the Medical College of Wisconsin, where Howard Jacob and his colleagues sequenced the genome of a boy who had a very rare disorder. They couldn't figure it out from doing all sorts of tests. They found a genetic mutation that explained his disease. And so we're in the context of addressing a very specific question, we have the potential to, to learn quite a bit. And then to address the broader questions, what we need is the ability to generate that data, to share it, um, and, and to share it in a secure way that protects your privacy, um, that you know, makes the data useful and usable. I no, say, it's not just about the genetic data, it's all the deeper data beyond it. You're saying, you know, looking at all the other kinds of aspects of your clinical history and you know, sort of uh, uh, other aspects of your biology, that all has to come into the play because that's really ultimately what's going to help understand the disease itself. You can't, you know, and that's a different kind of data management as well. You know, DNA sequences is relatively, it's maybe 
large storage problems, but it's relatively straightforward uh, data itself. But when you're talking about biology, it's a very different kind of data. And I think putting all this into one standardized system, I think that's a, that's a key issue too, because there's not a lot of standardized collection of data. People you know, do tests very differently. I may you know, give, take your blood pressure a very different way that, it, that someone else takes your blood pressure. And if those data, two bits of data can't talk to each other, then, then the, those, we, I really can't combine those studies and make any informative decisions. Well, clinical data is a real issue too. Right? To interpret all this genomic data, we need access to clinical data. There's a big initiative to get electronic medical records in place, which will help in part. But if you look at it in EMR, an electronic medical record, most of the coding about disease is focused on one thing, billing. Right? The hospitals are interested in reimbursement. Right? That's what they're good at. The, the information about disease is sort of lost in all of this. So I think we have to rethink the way we look at how we keep medical records, how we share that information, how we do it securely, accurately. Well, you know, with the time that we have, um, we'd like to open it up to questions. We have three very bright scientists at your disposal. They'll be in later. <laughs> All right. But, but if, you can, if, you, if you please can go to the microphone, that would be helpful. Uh, hi there. Th thank you for that presentation. My name is Garen Staglin. Uh, I actually am co-chair of a campaign called the One Mind for Research campaign. Uh, two years ago, we launched a campaign to exactly accomplish what you're just describing. Uh, we got Nora Volkow, Story Landis, Tom Insel, and Steve Hyman basically to lead the development of a 10-year plan for neuroscience, which we actually announced at the Kennedy Library with the support of Vice President Biden. Apparently, we're still the best kept secret, uh, <laughs> but we are actually moving ahead with that, and it does contemplate public-private partnerships. We have GE, IBM. We don't yet have Pfizer, but we do have Lilly, Elan, and several others. Our goal is actually to move the cheese. We're going to raise $500 million a year in new public funding, uh, and we're going to study all brain disorders. We are already doing so with the launching of several public-private partnerships. So I invite you to go to onemindforresearch.org, uh, and if you're really interested in individual patient kinds of liberating uh, opportunities, there's a website called Patients Like Me, uh, based out of Boston, with some very interesting stuff, and Annie Wosicek and her group... Uh, I just wanted to, there were, they were asked a question about what could you do. I'm giving you a couple of ideas. Go to 23andMe. Yeah. Thank you. So 23andMe is interesting. Yeah. I actually have real issues with 23andMe because if you send them their DNA, yeah. they own your data. They have the rights to mine it. They actually told people earlier this year they couldn't access their data unless they paid. So it's an interesting company, but, you know, you have to. Just to be clear that that policy didn't, didn't stand. It didn't so they, stand. You could actually download your your data yourself and do whatever you want with your own data. But they still have rights yeah. to mine it oh, and patent it. True, true, true. And that's the consent you sign. So if you're gonna, it's you know, it's a you know, buyer beware type of thing. You actually have to know, understand what it is you're signing. But but I agree that's. Uh, but you can still download your data and you can you can do whatever you want with it. So another one of your partners. <laughs> no, we work with them for sure. But I you know, but uh, I think and we have our own sort of issues with with that kind of kind of thing as well. Uh, patenting, for example, I think is a, is an issue of, of genes. But uh, just wanted to be clear that you can actually own your data. I'm Judy Allen, Houston, Hi. Texas. Forgive my incorrect wordage about genomes and sequencing and DNA. The WPO chapter in Houston, World President's Organization, was fortunate enough, if they wished, the members wished to, to participate in having our DNA sequenced, but it was only 22,000 genes, I think. Is there something special about 
22,000 versus the whole platform? So the answer is actually fairly simple. Um, inside, we're, inside our genome, we recognize genes. And actually, most of the genome doesn't encode proteins. It's sort of empty space. The, the protein coding regions are called exons um, in these genes. And the estimates are they're about 22,000. A lot of the focus on sequencing genes is simply because that's the only stuff we know anything about. What all the other genes do, we have, or what all the other DNA does, we have very little idea. Right, so when it gets to be $100 or so, do we want the whole ball game or do we want the 22,000? I think we want the whole thing because there may be other factors that influence the development and progression of disease. But we start with, you know, we're looking under the street light because that's where the light is brightest. It was a study on schizophrenia, and I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, John. I'm Bob Rose with Thomson Reuters. Uh, Chris. So you were talking about, ideally, you'd like to give your wife for Christmas the entire genome app. You talked about, you know, discovering you'd like to find more information about, about cancer. And then you talked about the, the, what happens if you find something and you can't do anything about it. What about the situation where you find something and doing something about it is counterproductive? And the only analogy I can think of right now is people are debating whether they should have a total body scan or not because you end up finding something that turns out to be benign but creates a lot of worry, creates a lot of expense, creates a lot of things. And I would think that such a thing, you know, having a, a genome map, especially if you found cancer or something or the indications of a potential cancer, could create situations which would be longstanding interventions which would be counterproductive or expensive. Well, you know, you can ask that question almost of, of, of any medical test, right? My physician uh, runs a blood panel on me every year. I have a friend who's a physician. She says you should never have that because you're healthy, right? And they may discover something and treat something that's not there. I, I think part of what we have to do, which we didn't discuss here, is we also have to educate physicians. And we have to make sure that there are appropriate gatekeepers to this information who can help, you know, individuals interpret the information. So and I, I think that's a... Absolutely not, because what are you going to do with that information, right? A whole genome sequence, if you had it today and just, you know, you were trying to interpret it, you could find all sorts of scary things in there, many of which may be completely irrelevant for you. On the other hand, if you had that, if that was part of your medical record, right? My son has this for the rest of his life. Number one, we have a reference from when he was young. If he picks up mutations over the course of his life, we can find those, which may point to what's causing development of disease. Number two... Um, if he does have disease, we can actually look in it immediately and see if we can find something we can link to potential causes or particular therapies. So, you know, it, it's, it's all about, it's, it's a tool. The data is a tool. What we really have to understand is how to use that tool most effectively. Hello, my name is Jeremiah Grant, and I'm one of the 2012 Bezos Scholars here. I'm interested in majoring in neuroscience and perhaps minoring in biomedical education. And I also was interested, because you talked about, and I've always had a passion for neuroscience ever since I saw a kid with cerebral palsy. And I said to myself, if we have cerebral palsy or myasthenia gravis, how, as the 21st century leaders in science and technology, can we develop a way to either implement other people's ideas, or more specifically, would it be possible for us to specialize in pharmacy in order to... Yeah, pharmacy. 
You're the neuroscientist. Yeah, so just try to think about the question. So the real question you're trying to ask is just ways of, of linking diseases together to better understand sort yes. of, I mean, so, I mean, I don't know if this is, if we talked about this earlier, if this is what is really gets at your question, but this idea of by uncovering and understanding, I think, different disease mechanisms that might be shared that can really open up a different world of how you develop drugs. Another good example, so Parkinson's disease, one of the classic pathological sort of features of the disease is if you look in the brains of people after they've died with the disease, there are these clumps of protein, the protein called alpha nucleon, which interestingly enough has a genetic mutation in it as well that causes some rare cases of the disease. But this protein clumping in the brain is a clear pathological readout of Parkinson's and people think, they're not for sure, but they think it may actually have something to do with the disease process. This idea of protein clumping being a cause of brain disease is actually something that's shared conceptually with Alzheimer's disease where you have a different protein that clumps called uh, beta amyloid uh, and other kinds of diseases where other kinds of proteins clump together and, and cause the cells, basically kind of clog up the works is the basic concept here. So if all of these diseases really are just diseases of proteins not being well processed in our cells and not getting to the disposal system that they're supposed to be getting to, can you develop drugs that will target that system, and actually then maybe you've now developed a drug that can treat Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and you know, any of a number of other sort of protein handling diseases. And so I think that concept, I think, is really, really key and powerful. So just do it. Yeah. Go into science. Yes. It's incredibly Yeah, that's the other, the other message, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, you should do it. Don't worry about how you're going to get there. Go for it. But my best advice to you as a student, okay, completely unsolicited, is first, make sure you develop good quantitative skills. A lot of people go into biology to avoid math. Study mathematics. Yeah. Learn to be a good quantitative scientist. Number two, learn to program. What we're talking about here is big data. And the biological science is transforming from a laboratory science to an information science, where the winners and losers in the race are going to be those best able to collect, manage, analyze, and interpret the data. So learn how to develop software and tools. And number three, do exactly what you're doing today. Go to scientific meetings and talk to people. Because the thing we never get taught as scientists is we're all small businessmen. We're selling a product, and our product is ourselves. And if you come up to me now, after, or Brian or any of us, after asking us a question today, and you say, hey, can I have an internship working with you at the Michael J. Fox Foundation? The chances that he'll give you an internship because you asked a question here are about 100% greater than if you sent them an email blind. Okay? So market yourself. Thank you. Great advice. I'm Ira Leshner, a former chair of the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center in uh, San Diego. Uh, one uh, political comment first. In the state of California, just recently, by virtue of the intervention of the tobacco companies, uh, millions and millions of people defeated a referendum that would have put another dollar on a pack of cigarettes specifically designed to cancer research. How many of those people who voted against that referendum at the same time expect that you're going to be able to do your job as far as cancer research? So it's a, an involvement of all of the citizens to look for those kinds of things and to pierce those kinds of advertising uh, super kills that, uh, that hold down research. Second one is a question. Would you advise that the parent of every child, when the uh, genome is $100, $50, whatever it is, sequence that, keep it as their own reference, and therefore be able to use that as perhaps environmental mutations 
uh, affect the, the genome as it goes forward? Is that a valuable piece of information that every parent and every grandparent perhaps should do? I, you know, I, I look at that question and I, I think the genie's out of the bottle. That if I can send a, you know, cheek scrape to Beijing and get my genome sequenced, mm -hmm for $1,000 or less, people are gonna start doing it. At my son's school, there's a parent who's had her child tested for a fast twitch muscle mutation, which occurs more frequently in elite athletes, right? And you know, she's had this test done already, and I have a lot of opinions about that. Which, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, th this genie's out of the bottle. I think what we really have to do as a society, and we're always playing catch up in the legal and social and ethical era uh, of domain is um, to really wrestle with how we make that data secure, how we store it securely, how we protect it. You know, are you going to keep it at home on a flash drive? I mean, what are you going to do with it? We really have to come up with strategies to secure it, to lock it down, to make sure that it's available to people when they need to use it for reasons they need to use it, but so that, you know, your kids or grandchild's insurance company or employer can't get access to it. Um, my name is Bonnie Davis. <clears throat> I invented and developed a drug. Um, my question is about data ex exclusivity in the United States. Um, data exclusivity for the non-drug developers is the amount of time you can sell your drug before generic competition is allowed on the market. Now, um, in the United States, it's five years. In other countries, it's much longer. No one is going to even start the development of a drug or do anything you're all talking about if they can't at the end make enough money to pay for the development. Now, if we want to make drugs that are going to affect the course of Parkinson's, of diabetes, of Alzheimer's, we have to have a period of time in which the costs of development can be recouped. Now, that five years is for small molecules. You can buy those for one or two hundred dollars a month. We do have 12 years on biologicals, but you can buy them for ten or twenty thousand dollars a month and we'll never be able to use them to alter disease course. So the question is really almost a political question. Are we doing anything to see how we might be able to increase data exclusivity so that all compounds, repurposed compounds, which will have weak patent protection, and even compounds with patent protection, which is going to expire by the time you do all those long-term studies, will still be developed? Because this is going to put a lid on everything we've talked about today. Well, it's an, you, I mean, you probably have... Definitely some things to t uh, talk about here, but one thing I did want to raise is an interesting thing, this idea of the exclusivity period being sort of the, the end all of, 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 of the, the problem, and that's obviously a political issue, and how do you kind of change that? Um, but the idea, too, of the process by which you fill that time, it takes a long time to do a clinical trial now. How much of that is due to unchangeable factors versus how much of that is due to patient recruitment issues? Uh, most, a lot of trials fail, because, not because the drug was unsafe or, or uh, you know, didn't work, but because they couldn't find enough people to be in the trials. I mean, that's a, that's a horrible thing to think about, that we have a great, potentially a great drug and a potentially, a, a, you know, a, 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 a new treatment, and we can't even find people to be in those trials. And so if you can de uh, sort of collapse that time period of development so that you're actually getting that drug tested much faster, uh, then you do have, uh, obviously, a little bit more time in even that same, that same framework. And I think that's, I mean, something that we've, are pretty passionate about, and we, we try to really push on, on patient engagement that way. 
and biomarkers is another really key thing. I think we can talk about that for, so, for as well. So, uh, you know, I mentioned the fact my, my colleague Mick Corral and I started this little company. The, the whole goal was really to facilitate secure storage and access to, to genomic data. And one of the groups that got very interested in working with us is one of the contract research, or, research organizations that runs clinical trials. And they tell us that one of their major expenses is patient recruitment. They're looking for patients with a particular disease, with a particular genetic background. So they want us to work with them and their hospital partners to start doing more widespread genetic testing so that you can connect the dots, so that you can find a patient who might qualify for the trial more effectively to reduce the time. You know, we've got this complex ecosystem of lots of different you know, moving parts and organizations, and we just have to facilitate all working together much more effectively. So thank you for asking that question. <laughs> Um, I, I have a number of thoughts about that. Um, first of all, you're, you're absolutely right. It's an incredibly expensive and time-consuming process to develop novel therapeutics. And as I mentioned, the cost is actually increasing. And we're going to try to do, and we are doing what we can to become more efficient from an in industry point of view. But the reality is this is an expensive process. I've been working in the pharmaceutical area for 20 years. I've been involved with three drug approvals over those 20 years. There are more than 1,000 colleagues that I have in La Jolla who work together. This is not a small investment. This requires an enormous amount of resource. Part of the reason why, we've, why I've been through three mergers and acquisitions as an employee is because there's pressure to deliver short-term value not an easy thing to do in this area. And so I agree, as a society, we've got to figure out ways of supporting that kind of research. It's not cheap. It's not easy. And I think it's really critical that we, we figure out how to, how to support that from all, all levels. And from, from industry, I can tell you it's, it's, it's a real struggle. But you know, the interesting, I, I'm, I know people have other questions, but the interesting thing about this is that it's also thinking about the long-term investment. I was in Australia uh, about a year ago <laughs> Um, I got an award there, and I went down for the ceremony, and there's a minister of health there. And his, he was advocating for research into Alzheimer's. And what he did was he looked at the aging of the population, and he said Alzheimer's is going to be a huge cost burden on the health system. And so what we want to do is invest today in trying to find cures that's going to make caring for Alzheimer's less expensive. And that's that long-term view that we just don't seem to be able to get a handle on in the era of quarterly reports on you know, short-term financial gain. Uh, I can help you with your APOE. Just convert yourself to a rat and get on a running wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exercise. Thank you so much. I, I apologize that we're, that we're out of time, uh, but uh, the, the panel might be still be here for a little bit, and let's thank them. Thank you.